You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt, we must disobey, we must agitate, we must escalate, we must break, we must create, we must abolish, we must transform. I remember it. She was shocked by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations caged in all the homes. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Lit Review Podcast, a literary podcast for the movement. Today we are here to talk about the repression and criminalization of environmentalists and animal rights activists through the book Green is the New Red, an insider's account of a social movement under siege by Will Potter. We'll introduce our guest in just a minute, but first, Monica, how are you? I know something cool happened today. Yes, I got my driver's license. I'm so excited about it. I, yeah, I really wanted to do this for a while now. I've had my permit for like a year, and it was almost about to expire. And then I was like, no, I need to do this. I need to go get my license. And they're always so mean and really scary. But then, and then I walked into the like DMV and Debbie's sitting there like, did you pass? Did you pass? And I'm like, I don't know. She didn't talk to me. She didn't say anything. And then finally I saw on the paper, it said pass. And I was like, yes, I pass. Um, Yeah. How are you? You're about to turn a certain number. Your birthday's coming up. Sagittarius. How old are you turning? I'm about to be 30, so hey, it's my last, it's almost the last week of my 20s, so I'm trying to not stress it too much, but also I really want to do something special every day, so I'm trying to figure that out. Um, Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I'm like really, really excited to be 30, and I feel like it's going to be a really fun decade, and yeah, I'm excited that you have a car and you can drive south all the time. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So today we're talking uh, to a longtime Chicagoan, someone I have personally known uh, for a super long time through Chicago communities, um, through the anarchist community specifically, maybe about 10 years ago, I think. Is I when think it's met. about 10 I think years it's 10 ago. 10 years ago, yeah. Uh, he's a he's a vegan. Uh, he's an attorney for the People's Law Office, who actually just worked uh, on a case to free two people from the Move Nine, uh, Debbie Africa and Mike Africa. Who is that correct? Yep. Okay. Who got paroled after forty years, um, which is a huge thing to celebrate. Um, for those that aren't familiar with the Move Nine, uh, they're a group of men and women who have been in prison since 1978, uh, following a massive police attack on their home in a Philadelphia neighborhood. Um, if you don't know about them, you should read about them. Um, you can read about them at onamove.com and we'll post the link on our website. Um, so welcome to our podcast, Brad Thompson. How are you doing today, Brad? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. I'm a big fan of you all's work and the community and I'm a big fan of the podcast. Yeah. So I'm excited to be a part of it. Well, thank you for listening. Um, so the first question I'm going to ask you is something we ask everybody that's on the show and that's who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? My name is Brad Thompson. I'm a lawyer at People's Law Office, which is a radical office here in Chicago that 
focuses on representing people whose civil rights are violated by the police and other state actors. We also represent people who are criminalized based on their political identity or organizing, and that means representing people who are facing charges after arrested or political prisoners who've been convicted based on that. I And I try to do that kind of work within the framework of abolition and within a context that is trying to collaborate with social movements and recognize that social movements are the way to that social change is created. And I do that work because I have a background of organizing and being part of radical communities and participating in social movements and that I think that that's a crucial way that we're able to get systemic change and that I feel like in doing that work and working as a paralegal and investigator at People's Law Office before becoming an attorney, I saw that there was a role for legal support to really provide material, concrete support to radical movements that I'm in solidarity with. I first heard of this book personally a couple years ago because I... Um Little known fact, I, so my plan was not to stay in Chicago, but to go to grad school and get my PhD in geography to study questions around, like, what is a human, right, with a capital H? Like, what, what, where are the lines? Um, and what are the implications of that? And I was really interested in animals and nature and all these things. And, um, and so I was looking more at organizing that specifically was rooted in those questions. Um, and, and, uh, and I remember hearing this story about... Um, as I'm studying, sort of, as I'm learning more and more about the the power of of agriculture and the power of these massive industries, I hear this story about Oprah and how one of, back in the '90s, right. how, yeah, she she um, had a show. This is back during Mad Cow Disease, which I remember as a thing, and I was terrified to eat beef because they were yeah, yeah, there was just this sensational story everywhere. And she did a show on food safety, and I think this was 1996 or 1998. And um, in that show, she she says something. You know, she's pointing to the she asks questions of the meat industry, and I think she has something about saying how like she is eating less red meat now and there's this huge fall in uh, people buying meat after this and it, it could be Oprah it could be the fact that mad cow disease was everywhere <laughs> right. on the news right um, but I remember reading that this was one of the few things that like tried to tear down Oprah and like they and it was I believe she was facing like terrorism charges or something uh, but it was very very serious I feel like it there were like huge fees and it was this moment where it became clear for folks paying attention that you can there's really really intense lobbying and industry behind that package that tries to portray itself as like a family farm right uh, but that there's actually like some really intense political power I think Rick Perry was involved mm -hmm. who later runs for pres president and stuff so anyways um, I'm wondering how you came across this book? What led you to read it? Why did you read it? Yeah, so I first read this book because I was familiar with Will Potter and his journalism covering the Green Scare and covering the attacks on the animal rights and environmentalist movement. And these were movements that I identified with. You know, this is primarily the targets of the Green Scare are anarchists who are part of, who are vegans, animal rights activists, part of radical environmentalist movements. And so Seeing that was something I was very interested in and want also working at a law firm at the time and understanding this as a legal attack, trying to learn a lot about that. And actually, uh, at the office, we had represented somebody who was charged with participating in an animal liberation action and charged with animal enterprise terrorism. So I had a lot of familiarity with that. Uh, and I actually 
admittedly kind of slept on the book for a minute when it first came out because I had read his blog all the time. And I just kind of was like, oh, this is just going to be a compilation of stuff that I've already read or that I know about. But I have to say I was like much more impressed after reading it. It's a lot more compelling and it's a lot of the same information, but it's just a lot of, a lot more depth and analysis than I had initially anticipated. And so this book, I've read the, I haven't read the book. Um, I don't think Paige has either. No, Paige has not read the book either. And so what was this red that they're talking about? Like, I just curated an exhibition on 100 years of police violence in Chicago. So I know what it is, but for our listeners that don't, what was the red? And like, how is that talked about in conjunction with this green scare that we're talking about? Sure, yeah. So the the Red Scare, and really there was different waves throughout the 20th century of Red Scares, uh, where there was a sort of government and public outcry and fear of anything so-called communist or socialist or anarchist, and that manifested itself in a variety of different ways. And one of the things that Will Potter in the book identifies is sort of three different levels of that. And so one is legislative, one's legal, and the third is what he calls extra-legal or scaremongering, which I would also just call propaganda. That's just kind of an, an all-out attack and using mass media, a lot of the same stuff that you're talking about in terms of what they did you know, with Oprah of just sort of public attack and sort of all-out scaremongering through the sort of the power of messaging. And so that was sort of how that manifested itself. The Red Scare, which... You know, we still see some of these things today that there's even in terms of immigrant rights, for example, and there's restrictions about whether you're a member of a communist party in your home country and whether you've advocated for the violent overthrow of the United States government and all these things. Oh, my God. I had no idea that they asked that still. Like, I have a friend that's going to go through that interview, and they, they ask that. They ask you, are you going to overthrow the U.S. government, and are you part of the Communist Party? And I was like, they still ask you that? Yeah. And, there's, and, and so it's still wow. – and I mean, these are these kinds of things that it was, you know, the blacklists, mm -hmm. that the attacks on Hollywood, the McCarthy hearings, the House Un-American Activities Committee – and so all that was part of the green scare, or I'm sorry, the red scare, and that there were, you know, red squads that were local police teams that were just monitoring specifically, quote unquote, subversive organizations, you know, and that, and that tied in with COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program of the FBI that was targeting communist radical organizations along with black power and indigenous rights organizations and other sort of social movements that were challenging institutions of power. So that's the historical red scare that, you know, Will Potter sort of discusses in the book and explains, you know, a lot of times we look back on this, people that are aware of this history and sort of frame it as, oh, that was, you know, history that we shouldn't be proud of necessarily. This was sort of an overreaction or sort of a fear during the Cold War that was a little much, but then recognizing that no, these same sort of tactics continue, and they've just continued to different movements, sometimes still the same movements, still socialists, anarchists, communists are still targeted for, for having anti-capitalist values, but though the way that it looks is different than it was 50, 60, 100 years ago. This is our big question. If you could walk us through the book, and I'm sure we'll have follow-up questions along the way. Sure. So, you know, as the subtitle says, it's an insider's account of a social movement under siege. And so Will is, one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is Will Potter is a journalist that is really fact-based and research-based, but is admittedly part of this movement. And he has personal relationships 
and he identifies as an animal rights activist. And so part of what he, where he starts from is his own personal experience of how this has impacted him, where he got arrested at a home demonstration and an animal rights protest. And then there were FBI visits to him, his work at the Chicago Tribune and at his house, or maybe they didn't come to the Tribune, they just threatened to, I forget. You know, but he sort of lays out this personal experience there. So he's in Chicago? He was. Oh, he was in Chicago. Okay. Like in 2000, I think is when this okay. happened, maybe 1999. And then, and so I didn't know that until I started reading the book. Um, but he, and so he sort of just takes his own personal experience as, a, as an example there and then exploring what that means about this term of terrorism and terrorist thrown around at people getting arrested for handing out leaflets. And so he sort of, like I said, he talks about Red Scare hysteria and these three different levels of the legislative, the legal, and the extra legal. And he describes how there's this manifests itself in the Green Scare of being this corporate and government-led attack on animal rights and envir environmentalists. He discusses the legislative and legal in addition to the anti-terrorism laws and rhetoric. So he's talking about the, the use of the term terrorism, and he spends a lot of time exploring that and what that means and how that applies to these movements and how it's been sort of manipulated and the term's been used to demonize these movements, undermine these movements, and that all the sort of common themes that we associate with terrorism don't apply here. So for example, you know, the, even the most radical, most militant animal rights act, actions in the United States have never harmed any humans. Even when there's been property destruction, there's never been any harm to human life. And, you know, some of the organizations that he highlights that are these militant groups even make that a priority, one of their guidelines to go out of their way to avoid human, harming humans or non-human animals. One of, the, one of the other really great things about the book is that he does give this sort of history of the, the most militant wings of these movements. So specifically in the animal liberation, in the animal liberation movement, he looks at the animal liberation front, which is sort of mostly underground cells that take an action to either to liberate animals, actually removing animals from property, properties where they're being held to be used for testing, or where their, their bodies are used to make fur, leather, other animal products, and made into food, and then also a lot of property destruction, so arsons and physical attacks on property. And those are the kinds of things that ALF has been doing in the United States and throughout the world for a few decades now. And so he, he explores some of those histories and places it in its historical context, and then also an organization known as SHAC, S-H-A-C, which stood for Stop, Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty. And Huntington Life Sciences is a corporation that exclusively focuses on animals to be used for testing. So they aren't a company that has any kind of particular uh, product that they produce that needs to be tested, and they just produce the animals and conduct these testing for other corporations. Mm -hmm. And so they became a target of animal rights activists. And Shaq is an organization that made an umbrella of all this different campaign targeting Huntington Life Sciences. So HLS, 
for short, had been became the sort of focal point of all these attacks and became a campaign where they targeted not only that organization, that corporation, mm -hmm. but they started targeting all the different tertiary organizations, so any company that was associated with them. So, you know, corporations that were doing their custodial cleanup at the buildings or the brokers for getting them onto the stock market or any other kind of the insurance companies that provided them insurance, they then became the targets. And it was a sort of strategic approach where these corporations would profit from their relationship with this company, but they didn't have much to benefit from their relationship and had a lot to lose once they became targeted. And the, the campaign was very widespread in that they used a wide array of diversity of tactics and they would be very public about targeting individual corporate executives for each of these different places. Not Again, not only of Huntington Life Sciences, but of any of these corporations that were associated there. And so they ended up, Shat, the Shaq campaign had a lot of success in getting these corporations to withdraw support from Huntington Life Sciences. And then for the environmentalist movement, one of the the main organization, if you could call it an organization, that they that is explored in the book is ELF, the Earth Liberation Front, that again, similar to the ALF, did a lot of, has done a lot of underground actions and property destructions in defense of the Earth and to really target the corporations and institutions that are profiting off the destruction of the planet. Mm -hmm. So in giving that kind of background and explaining sort of what these movements are, the book then explores how they've been, the people that have been involved in these most militant parts in the movement have been attacked and criminalized, and then how industry and government have used these most militant wings of the movement as a way to sort of tarnish the entire movement and to sort of use scare tactics to sort of make it so that anybody who's part of these movements has to be concerned that they might be arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit terrorism as part of their affiliations with these organizations. Does the book talk explore like what like why was the word terrorism utilized in this specific context at all? Yeah, okay. yeah, the, okay. the book really goes into that and okay. talks about especially you know these movements were particularly in the 90s and into the early 2000s were really picking up a lot of steam. And after September 11th, there was a lot of social and political capital in claiming you're targeting terrorists. So there just became a point in, especially in the early 2000s, where using the term terrorism in, by politicians or law enforcement or the FBI meant that they would just get money and resources and political support. And the book explores, he really goes into the history of these attempts by industries to coin this term animal rights extremist, animal rights terrorism. So he talks about how beginning in the 80s and 90s, and there were a lot of industries and law enforcement types who were trying to use the word terrorism and apply that to animal rights activists and coin the term, quote, eco-terrorism, and how that started to pick up steam. And really, after September 11th, it really became a total highlight of the FBI and other law enforcement agencies, both on a national level and local levels. And he explores how the sort of the anti-Muslim Islamophobic attacks and framing that again as being opposed to terrorism gave this kind of carte blanche to be able to 
attack any movement that had the label terrorism attached to it. And so he really explores a lot of that time frame of the George Bush era of the war on terror and the you're with us, you're against us, and how that applies to these movements as well. This is happening in the 90s and 2000s mostly, is that right? So a lot of the ALF actions and ELF actions are happening in the, the 90s. ALF actions starting in the 80s and into okay. the 90s. And then sort of the, the green scare, quote unquote, really was in the early 2000s is when that started to be a term that was used to describe these kinds of government and corporate attacks on the movements. So what's happening there? You, earlier you used the word hysteria, right? There was a hysteria of, um, that creates the political repression of these movements. Why? Like what, um, why that? Of all the things that people fight against, right? The, the, um, I'm thinking about the people who trained me in planning protests and direct action. Uh, one of them was, uh, yeah, an organizer in animal liberation movements. And that she was like experiencing intense repression, thought she'd never organize again, and then started back up around the time of BLM. Um, and it seemed, it was just like a, an extreme repression that's taking place. And I know, but I know there were other things that were like people, people organize everywhere you go. So what what was at stake? Why? I mean, to compare it to the Red Scare to me suggests that what was under what what people felt was under attack was um, not just these individual sites of liberation, but something much more fundamental to how we live and how we identify as a larger society. And so does the book talk about that at all? Like why there this was such an intense target? Yeah, the book does a a good job at exploring sort of how corporations and lobbyists really sort of created this hysteria and really sort of pushed governments and pushed law enforcement entities to really de decide that this was going to become their quote unquote number one domestic terrorist target. And the sort of the way that it manifested itself in terms of that repression was on these kinds of large scale uh, criminalization, examples of criminalization and these big prosecutions and arrests and raids of people involved with these movements. And so, for example, there was a law that was passed first in 1992 called the Animal Enterprise Protection Act. And that was the result of these legislative efforts to make a federal law that any protests against animal industries could become a federal crime. And then that got changed, it got increased to two th in 2002, where the sentences were higher, it became a little bit broader in terms of who could be prosecuted. And then in 2006, they amended the law and it became the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. So it exclu explicitly used the term terrorism in the title and that the crime itself is committing animal enterprise terrorism, which just in that phrase itself, it's so bizarre, but it's basically saying if you're terrorizing an animal enterprise, and then it defines what an animal enterprise is. And that goes through really any industry that is involved in profit of animals, utilizing animals, so that includes zoos, rodeos, labs that do animal testing, et cetera. And in the expansion from the APA, into the ATA, mm -hmm. it includes the companies or entities that do any business with those enterprises. So that was 
specifically because of the Shaq campaign was being so successful at targeting these corporations that were associated with an animal enterprise corporation, but weren't an animal enterprise corporation themselves. So the legislative history that he describes in this book is going through this way, and we see this in other movements, we see this in the way that, that government works in general, that they're simultaneously using all these tools in their toolbox, using all these laws on the books to repress these movements and showing how successful they are at it, but simultaneously saying, we need more tools to do this, we need to increase the penalties, look at all these terrorists who are locking up, but we need to be able to do that more. So there was a very high profile prosecution of the people who were, some of the people who were involved with the Shaq campaign, who, and really they were the people that ran the website and helped kind of coordinate some of the public face of it. And they were never charged or alleged to have been involved in any of this sort of property destruction or threats or any of the sort of tactics that were most demonized. However, they were charged under what was then the Animal Enterprise Protection Act with conspiracy to commit animal enterprise terrorism. And so it was very a very strong attack on them based on First Amendment activity that they ran this website and they gave speeches and they told people who was the president or CEO of which corporations, and they really advocated for using a diversity of tactics. And that alone was enough for six individuals to be convicted in federal court of animal enterprise terrorism. And so those kinds of things, that sort of had this huge impact, this real scare tactic on everybody else, and this chilling effect that people felt like, oh, even, even if I'm not planning on doing any militant underground action, just being involved in a campaign, an organization, a movement that has that in, uh, as part of it yeah. could subject me to prosecution. And that's, you know, the conspiracy charge in and of itself carries such a danger in that it becomes this tool to prosecutors to charge people and get a lot of convictions based on association. And when that is involved with sort of political activity, and then becomes a way that anybody who is furthering a movement can be convicted even if they aren't participating in the action themselves. Real talk though, animal rights activists have a really bad rap, right? <laughs> um, as someone who like dabbled for a minute, like, I'm like, ah, uh, I'm thinking about how usually, right, like people limit it to P organizations like PETA um, or like your annoying cousin who is like really quote unquote preachy or whatever. I was that person. I was that cousin for a long time. Um, and so, um, but I, I, I think that's really uh, a tool of our oppressors, that, that sort of narrative around what animal rights activists are and what they do. And like, yeah, Fuck PETA when they use black suffering as a metaphor right. um, and to engage to make white people empathetic, um, but uh, but that there's something clearly given the level of repression um, that is much more critical to how our society is structured and perhaps in relationship to environment and nature and other things. I don't, I don't know, but 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 that something really profound is happening in this organizing and, and its demands um, for the for this level. I mean, they went after Oprah like. Like nobody goes after Oprah, right? <laughs> um, so what does the book say about that? Why Why is there such, again, like this question around hysteria. Um, why do people hate, oh, can you defend, actually just, no, can you just defend the animal rights activists? <laughs> I think they deserve some defense. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a longtime vegan animal rights, animal liberation supporter, and I can both sort of defend and advocate 
that there's a lot of folks that are part of that movement that have really radical analysis and uh, people that are embracing intersectionality within animal liberation. And so I just to name drop Patrice Jones is somebody who is has been doing that work from a queer uh, feminist perspective for decades. And Breeze Harper, who has a website and a book called Sista Vegan, and she is exceptional. Uh, there's also somebody named Christopher Stevens, I believe is his name, who writes uh, from a black queer perspective. So there's definitely folks that are doing that and calling out a lot of this behavior that uh, that is problematic within the that has been problematic with the animal rights movement. And in recent years, I've been impressed that there's been a lot more sort of recognition of that and a pushback on some of the sort of single issue veganism and to have a sort of more of a radical analysis within that. And I, I do think that there is a lot of a lot of challenging of the status quo that animal rights activists and environmentalists bring to the table. And that's because it really, especially some of the folks that get most criminalized and get discussed in this book, are really coming at a very radical analysis, a very anti-capitalist, anti-status analysis, and really trying to say the, the fundamental ways in which our societies are organized need to be dramatically changed. And in the end of the book, Will Potter sort of explains sort of what do we think, when I started this investigation, I was trying to figure out what is it that really makes them so targeted, these movements? And a quick answer is that, you know, they, they make real threats to profits. And so it's not just a matter of government going after them. It's the sort of complex of governments and lobbyists and corporations. And so really it's a threat to the bottom line. But he also goes further in saying, it's also a threat to a sort of philosophical understanding that a lot of people in the United States have sort of embraced for centuries about what it, what entitlement humans have to the land and to other species. And in a, in a way that people in the animal rights movement talk about that in connecting it to other forms of oppression that's, that I think is helpful is recognizing that the similarities is, is in the, the oppressor's sort of understanding of this othering of people and really sort of destroying uh, the sentient beings and sort of their entities and autonomy and that that manifests itself in lots of different in lots of different ways. Yeah, and it, I just, um, I'm having like two thoughts as you're talking. There's a lot of our movements to really challenge how the United States and much of the, of the world at this point understands property and how it relates to people that can claim humanity, right? And then that goes all the way to this, the, 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 the idea of demanding or of insisting that black lives matter, right? Like why is that so abrasive to so many folks, right? And right. I think all of these have an interesting question that they make around who gets to claim the right of ownership and what is ownership and anyways, all these things. But yeah, thank you for, for lifting this up. I, I think it's reminding me of, of how power works at this, especially like global capitalism scale in terms of if you want to look at the biggest companies, a lot of them are in agribusiness, right? right? Or in an extractive industry. Where are we sort of at, at in the animal rights and environmental justice fights um, and the subsequent repression that comes with it on both a national scale, but also a local scale? Like, well, do you know of anything happening on a local scale right now here in Chicago or in the Midwest? Um, and then also like, does Will talk about any current 
folks still fighting uh, charges or or prison time right now from you know from the the green scare. Um, I'm thinking of like Mason, who is an anarchist and an environmentalist and animal rights activist, who's currently serving. Um, 22 years in federal prison um, for acts of property damage carried out in defense of, of the earth. And so, yeah, I'm just wondering all like where are we at right now in all of this fight? Will's book, this is from, I think, 2011 when the book came out. And so some of the cases that he is talking about there, you know, some of the ones, the ELF cases, you know, and there was a big multi-unit FBI-led uh, investigation and prosecution that was called Operation Backfire. And that was 11 people who were arrested for participating in a variety of property destruction in the west part of the United States. And some of those people at the time, most of the people at the time that he's writing the book are were still incarcerated as part of that. They mostly have been released now. Some of them have had gone in, into hiding and had been caught. And so there's some people that are currently facing some charges based on that, and at least one that I know of. And also, in terms of the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act that I was talking about, that has been used subsequently a number of times for people participating in animal liberation actions that were releasing animals, like releasing uh, mink from fur farms, for example. And so one case that was here in Illinois that my office was involved in that I was working on before I became an attorney was Kevin Johnson and Tyler Lang and they had been charged and convicted of animal enterprise terrorism for releasing mink from a farm here in Illinois and and he also he does talk about Marius Mason in the book that's somebody else who you know has this and is still continuing to serve that time the things that I think are most critical in the attacks in the sort of new legislation and new evolution of the green scares, the attacks on pipeline protesters, and that and there's some that are just sort of traditional state-based charges that are being used against protesters, except there's also all this legislation that's created specifically targeting those movements. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, if people don't know, is a sort of um, a lobbying effort that combines business and conservative politics into a think tank and they draft a lot of legislation. They draft this model legislation and they drafted the model legislation for the AETA that was passed at a federal level and then also implemented, implemented by some states as well. And they currently have this model legislation around critical infrastructure protection, which is essentially any, anybody that's trying to stop pipelines. And so that's being, it's all over the state, and on the National Lawyers Guild website, maybe we can put a link to it, and, they, and they're doing a really good study of these anti-protest uh, legislation throughout the country, and they're just popping up in all these different states. And also, you know, tying it to Alex's sort of politics in a conservative way is with a lot of the sort of highway shutdowns we've seen in the Black Lives Matter movement, they've put together this model legislation to make it that people can't be charged with crimes if they run over protesters who are blocking the street and just asinine garbage like that. So, you know, they, this is a an organization, an entity that's been pushing for this and continues to push for this. And the title of the book, right, evokes this, tri I really, really appreciate 
uh, work that grounds itself in a history. And it's it's claiming, right, green as the new red, suggesting that there is a long tradition of political repression. Um, and, and as you've just shown, right, it didn't stop with environmental activists and animal rights activists being repressed. That now it's, it's been used in things that we've been seeing over the past few years. And so there's this extremely long history and very complicated um, and new and very well resourced system of repressing our movements. And it seems like it, it's been very effective. I mean, it really was devastating to the, these movements in the 2000s and 90s and 80s. Um, so I, what what gives you hope? Because you're still here, right? You're still doing it. <laughs> Why? How? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, some of the stuff that I was saying earlier that I think that movements evolving and developing more radical analysis and really adapting to some of this stuff and also becoming really fearless. Like, there's been a lot more of a movement that has been focused on liberating animals in the wide open in the United States. So there's been movements of doing these open rescues where people are just walking onto farms, not doing it in the middle of the night under the in dark and liberating animals from there and really sort of challenging all these all these laws that exist that can be used to prosecute them because you know the way that the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act is written is that it's anybody who travels through quote unquote interstate commerce to obtain any property, damage any property violate the financial interests of any animal enterprise can be charged with terrorism. And so the fact that both people continue to do these underground militant actions and face charges for it and do the time for it and get out, you know, most of the people that have faced the ATA have been, have done the, and that have gotten convicted have been released. Uh, there's a few that are still, one that I'm thinking of, Walter Bond, who's still locked up for that. But a lot of the folks do the time and have been successful. You know, Kevin and Tyler, for example, and they part of why they were convicted was because they shut down this fur farm and they, I think, recognized that that was an effective tactic yeah. in doing that. And so there's something that's powerful there that the repression is because it's effective. And I also think that a lot of the pipeline protests are really inspiring and there's been some real successes there in the courtroom too. So just recently I know some of the valve turners when there are people that in multi-states at the same time shut down the pipelines, turned the valves so that the, it was shut off and I think it was for a whole day and they faced felony charges for this and they, they were there were a series of cases that they went before the court and just recently a number of them who were represented by NLG lawyers had been acquitted and they had put together all this incredible evidence from expert witnesses about the necessity offense, the, ne the necessity defense saying that, and that's basically when there's, you admit that you committed a crime, but you're making an affirmative defense that your crime was lesser than the greater crime that was going to happen, right? So if you drive without a driver's license, which you don't have to worry about anymore Yay! now, Monica, <laughs> you know, but you're like, oh, it's because I had to drive this person to the hospital because they were about to die. Mm. And then that's a defense for you driving without a license. Mm -hmm. And so people have used that, tried to use that politically. And so they raised that defense and, and got all this. Um, and they actually didn't even get to present all that evidence because the judge, in a really unusual move, just granted in their favor before they the defense even presented all their right. evidence. Right. And then they said, can we present it anyway? And they like filed an official motion because they were like, no, part of the <laughs> like, point, part of the point is to like, we need all these experts to show. Yeah. And there was a ruling that they couldn't bring this 
information in to say, no, conventional methods of protest, lobbying, trying to change legislation, using more efficient light bulbs, everything else, this isn't actually stopping climate change Mm. that's destroying the planet. We need to go to something more drastic, which Mm. includes illegal tactics sometimes. And that's something that I think is a lesson from this book in looking at these movements that go to these extreme lengths. It's often because the individuals involved or the movements were participating in very very polite, legalistic efforts that were unsuccessful. And I think that's what we see in lots of movements. So that's all stuff that, uh, that's that been inspiring to me and seeing people that do the time and get out and keep doing work. Um, and that that's all inspiring to me. I'm going to steal the mic for a second and do something we've never done and dedicate this episode to this cow in Poland. Did you hear about this cow? <laughs> that... Okay, this is my favorite story of the year. I think about it all the time. So there was a cow that b- had been raised on this farm. And I don't even, this is not like like a, a factory farm, like what you would see in the U.S. So it's in Poland, and it's, it's going to be taken to the slaughterhouse. And my, I, w- I remember he- learning cows are, they're quite intelligent. They're smarter right. than, than dogs. Um, and they understand usually like what is happening and that it's bad. And so it starts to try to escape. And it rams against this fence. And there's a farm worker uh, that tries to, like, get her. And uh, she broke his arm. Um, And she jumps. She gets out of the fence. And she runs. And it's it's off of – it's on a lake. And so she runs to – and it's a very big lake. And she she swims, rather. um, And she just swims and swims and swims. And she makes it to one of the islands that's on the lake. And so she's there. And the farmer's like – I'm going to get you. And <laughs> so they, they start with, they do a few things. Um, the, it start, they escalate with firefighters. They get firefighters to go out, and she just swims away. She goes to another island, and so they can't get her. And then they send these veterinarians out, and they run out of their little gas cartridges, and it's like, it's going to take us a really long time to get there. And then the farmer's like, well, let's just kill her. And the mayor, at this point, it's become a story, this cow that has escaped and is living on an island and is like, I don't want to die. I, I, like, if you've ever heard of a demand, like, Without words, this is one. <laughs> and the mayor was like, let her live in peace. And so there's this cow that lives on this island and is going to live the rest of her life. They'll make sure that she has food. Um, and she lives on this <laughs> island wow. in Poland. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out That's to her. Incredible. This is dedicated to you, girl. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't have a story, but I am very excited about this episode because I feel like as depressing as it is to hear about the fucked up repression that's happening against animal rights activists and environmentalists, it's also a breath of fresh air to hear about the direct action that's happening in a moment where I know, like, specifically in Chicago, we're very surrounded by electoral politics happening right now. Right. <laughs> Fucking 50 people running for mayor and, like, <laughs> like 300 people running for alderman. Like, it's a, lo- it's a lot, and it's kind of overwhelming right now. And so this, is, this episode has literally been a, f- a breath of fresh air for me. Um, so thank you so much for being on our show and talking about this really important book. And so why should organizers read this book right now in this moment? With everything happening in our city, from no Cop Academy to uh, CPAC Now to fighting for community benefits agreement uh, for the Obama Library uh, to fighting for mental health clinics in our city. How does this relate to our work and inform the work that we do in Chicago? So I think that people should read the book and organizers in particular should read the book because it really does serve as a model to show that the way in which 
politics and corporations and capitalism collaborate to to target movements and attempt to repress movements. And by trying to understand that, it's easier to fight against that. And I think that this is just one example of how that works. I also think that there's a lot of lessons about avoiding pitfalls of relying on nonprofit industrial complex to support people to and you know avoiding the pitfalls of the good protester bad protester dynamic because that's some of the thing that we see here where you know some of these major organizations end up being buying into a lot of this hysteria and saying no we don't support this eco-terrorism we're the good environmentalists we're the good animal rights activists and historically we've seen that fail we've seen that being throwing our own people under the bus and i think that that's always an important lesson and i think that that's one of the things that chicago has done really well in the sort of radical grassroots movements is trying to to sort of even when people disagree or are fun functioning on different wavelengths or operating with different tactics people are still showing that solidarity in a way that's really important and i also think that you know, these radical movements of the Animal Liberation Front and Earth Liberation Front, they're things that aren't really well known. And I think that this is also just a good history of that. And he really tells it through a personal narrative and his relationships. And he's going to all the court dates of Shaq and ELF folks that are arrested. So he, he has an opportunity to sort of spell that out and to share that history. And again, put it in the historical context that people can recognize okay, the, this isn't just coming out of nowhere, this is coming out of really principled development of movements and recognizing that you know, more conventional tactics have failed and so people taking more militant, more extreme action is the way that, again, gets the, gets the goods. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I wanna turn off the recorder and just keep <laughs> talking about all the things, but um, we're at time and so I'm hoping you can close this out. I'm, I have, for real, we say this every time, but I'm getting this book and I'm reading it and yeah, this will be my, the first book of my 30s. So if you would close this out with a passage, yeah. It will not be easy. There will be more media campaigns, eco-terror legislation, and arrests. Through it all, one thing must be remembered about the activist label terrorists. They are in good company. Many of the radicals we revere today were feared and vilified in their time. Civil rights, American Indian, and anti-war activists were constantly harassed and surveilled. Anarchists organizing for an eight-hour workday were set up in kangaroo courts for murder, then executed. Socialists have been sentenced for sedition and imprisoned for making speeches. This is not to say that all activists should pat each other on the back and compare themselves to Dr. King, but today's social justice movements must be placed in historical perspective. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations caged in all the homes.